literally an institution in this town of digging up old photos, old stories, collections, everything you can imagine under the sun about this great city. Greasy spoons, dives, old clubs. If you love this city, you're going to love it even more. Real people, real stories, real places. This is the Austin Found Podcast. Welcome back to Austin Found. We appreciate you tuning in. I'm J.B. Hager. And I'm Michael Barnes. And we're with the Austin American Statesman and Austin 360. And we're going to tell you about, I can't think of any story we've done that is more tailor-made for Michael Barnes. <laughs> As a guy who, myself, I've mentioned this before on this podcast, took a theater history course that you taught <laughs> Right. Back in the late 80s at the University of Texas. So I know you know this subject matter. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> and, and it has to do with our historic and majestic Paramount Theater. Well put. Thank you. JB, that was you well know, put. You know, hanging out with you, it's, it's, <laughs> it's rubbing off. I'm becoming more of a wordsmith. Yeah, it was built in 1915. And everybody knows the Paramount. It's right in the middle of Congress Avenue, halfway from the uh, the river to the Capitol. Uh, just recently, last few years, put the uh, the blade sign back up. From they uncovered this older Paramount sign mm-hmm. and put it back up to commemorate the 100th year. Right. So this must have been in in uh, 2015, but that's not exactly it. They tried to find an old Paramount sign. They know it may be somewhere. Yeah, and there were all kinds of rumors, you know. Yeah, exactly. There were all kinds of rumors. Maybe the one in Abilene, because there's a Paramount in Abilene. Maybe that's the sign. But instead, what they did was use archival evidence and a lot of it to recreate it. And so it's, it's almost exactly like the original sign. Okay, yeah, so at the time that you uh, wrote about the Paramount, it was commemorating the 100th anniversary, which is a big deal. Again, a subject matter that comes up again and again on this podcast. Uh, The first 50 years, that was a a segregated theater. Oh, absolutely. Uh, But it was the premier place to do... Everybody went there. It was the biggest of the big time, and that's a a vaudeville phrase, and it was built as a vaudeville house and for those of you too young to, well none of us <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're at that point <laughs> well well it, very few people maybe uh, uh uh mickey uh caldwell who i interviewed in the last few weeks and he's 101 and he probably remembers the last days of vaudeville but and uh, i gotta ask him about that yeah. but anyway no uh vaudeville had already died out by the 1930s killed by the movies and by the depression but it was a form of variety theater where uh, – and, and just think of variety TV shows and you're thinking of what vaudeville was like. So there would be a song and dance team and then there would be a dog act and then be an opera singer. and there, so, so it was a variety show. Mm-hmm. And these uh, toured around the country and played little towns and big towns and then the biggest towns and uh, yeah for our generation it might have been you remember Sonny and Cher did a variety show yes, Laugh-In was kind of a variety, was a variety show. show a lot of the late night uh, show Saturday Night Live is a variety show yeah. in some senses it's a sketch comedy show too but yeah variety shows uh, 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 this kind of variety show goes back to the 19th century originally they were pretty naughty in the 1890s, Tony Pastor and others 
clean them up for for family audiences. And that, except for one naughty act, we're going to talk about. Well, there's yeah, <laughs> we'll get to that because I think it's important uh, that you, something you noted about the Paramount Theater because it was originally built for vaudeville. Right. It's a it's a pretty unique stage in both its intimacy to the audience, but also it's limiting. Right. Because vaudeville touring acts did not need a lot of scenery, there's virtually no backstage or side stages. Now, late in later years when uh, what are called legitimate plays, uh, you know, not variety acts, but plays and musicals and so forth, perform there, they had to find a way to get scenery in there, and it wasn't easy. You know, and they brought it in through the alley, and man... Now, there was a great group in town in the 1990s and early 21st century called Austin Musical Theater that did traditional Broadway shows there. Top-notch, top-notch. They had a special designer who uh, did a wonderful job designing scenery, big, big Broadway-scale scenery for a a place that didn't have any place to put it. Mm -hmm. I don't know where it all went. But uh, often with the touring companies, they just left the scenery out in the alley. Yeah, people don't think about historic value of things like that at yeah, that moment, right? Yeah. Before we get into the, like, the movie era and uh, the naughty show we'll tell you about, uh, who were some of the names? You might be surprised at how, you know, what big household names performed oh, at yeah. our theater. Orson Welles, Catherine Hepburn, Cab Calloway, Miles Davis. And one of the the most famous was Harry Houdini, the illusionist, magician kind of guy, who did his famous Chinese water torture cell. uh, And escaping from that. Escaping from that. Isn't that wild to think about? You know, just, I've got a ticket to go see Harry Houdini Mm -hmm. to do a stunt to try to escape. Like, how long was that show? Yeah. (laughs) They probably had a lot of performers leading up to it, and then you build up. And he did... Various illusions in this. And, you know, during the summer months when the pandemic had had cooled off a bit, I went downtown and saw Esther's Follies. And they're like a variety show. They're like vaudeville. You know, they have musical acts. They have sketch comedy. It spills onto 6th Street. It spills onto 6th Street. Which is really fun. First time I saw that, I had never seen anything like that. Oh, oh, listen. It it is still top-notch. I would recommend everybody. You were not an Austinite until you've seen it. True. That's true. So I went to see it, and I saw uh, Ray Anderson, who's their illusionist, do a dozen illusions. And this is not like from a distance of yards. This is a distance of feet. I could practically reach it's out a and very touch intimate him. stage, yeah. And I couldn't figure out a single one. Hmm. I couldn't figure out the trick on <laughs> any of them. And I've never been able to f- figure out the trick on any of them. And I'll say... It's, it, you know, it's not magic, but it looks like it. Mm-hmm. It really is great. But back to the Paramount. So at a certain point, vaudeville, for a choice of entertainment, started to fade because movies were coming out. Movies came in. So there were what were called road shows, which were big screen, big name, big budget films. That whole tradition started at the same time that it opened as the Majestic Theater, because, of course, we didn't say that, but it opened as the Majestic Theater. And part of Carl Hobbitzell's chain of, of vaudeville theaters. But one of the first movies that they played repeatedly 
unfortunately, was Birth of a Nation. Which uh, if you ever took a film history class, right. then you, you uh, discussed Birth of a Nation. Yeah, it, it kept returning in 1918 and 1919. And it first played the Hancock, the opera house that, that the Paramount pretty much displaced. But it kept filling up the Paramount every time it came back, which is really disturbing because, of course, it's about the Ku Klux Klan. And it's about the birth of white supremacy after the Civil War. You know, it was a very popular film. It was shown in the White House by President Wilson. But it is, if you watch it today, and you can watch it on TCM and other places, it's unbearable, the racism. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Jazz was a big scene at the Paramount as well. Absolutely. You know, all the big jazz greats played there. I wish I'd seen some of these. Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, Miles Davis. And nowadays, really, it's kind of returned to that roots because what it's most known for now is comedy, movies, and music. And sometimes the interview format where a celebrity will come in and and they'll Mm -hmm. interview them. But its days as a place for plays and musicals is pretty much gone. Some other big names you might recognize uh, that I remember from my childhood, Bernadette Peters, Carol Channing. Right. Patti LuPone, Mandy uh, Patinkin. There's a reason why Austin, being still a a tiny town, in my mind it's still a tiny town, but if you look around, (laughs) it's not, was a stop for them. Because you would think a lot of these big names, like you threw out earlier, Cab Calvary, you're like, why would they be stopping in Austin, yeah, Texas? Yeah. But they were just trying to be efficient with their tour. Right. The American touring system, which has not changed substantially since the 19th century, is dependent on having a, a circuit of, of venues around the country. And back when it was railroads that were taking people from town to town, you had to play every significant spot along that way to make it work. And so the the people at Interstate, which was Carl Hobbitzell's chain, they had this vast knowledge of how all of these different touring acts and shows and movies would, you know, go to Houston, San Antonio, and Austin, Dallas, Fort Worth, Oklahoma City, whatever. It it and then and then a smaller scale for the smaller cities. So in order to make a profit, you needed to play a lot of places, and Austin was one of those places. It's, it's weird, and, and enlighten me, it's weird to think of a movie being on tour. Well, it actually is. The physical movie, uh, the film, back when there was such a thing. Right. They didn't have mass distribution. No. They, yeah. No. Wow. And in fact, the central distribution point in Dallas for, for the physical movies was still operating when I was working at the River Oaks Theater in Houston and then later at the Varsity Theater in in Austin. And a big part of my exercise every day was carrying those heavy movie, metal movie yeah, cases. Yeah, they were in a big, yeah. big metal shell and carrying them up all the way to the projection. You did that? You were a, yeah. pro- a projectionist? No, I wasn't the projectionist. Those were union, that, union jobs. Oh, even in Houston? Uh, I believe so. And no, they were here. And yeah. they still are. Inter- oh, yeah, the Paramount's union today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which you don't... There's not a lot of union shops in yeah. Texas. It's not like the Northeast. Yeah. But anyway. So, yeah, the touring business is has not changed that much, though. Hmm. When you think of Live Nation, when you think of a lot of other things, 
it's all based on that same model. You know, we need to link these things up. And so, for instance, the, the, the acts that go to the big festivals, like ACL or Bonnaroo or whatever, those acts all have to be decided many months in advance so that they can get around the country jumping from one spot to another. And here's something interest, I found interesting you pointed out, too, is the Paramount was used for discussion about prohibition at oh, one yeah. point. It was also people orders, people who gave speeches who went from town to town, some on the Chautauqua circuit. But one of the famous ones that that uh, spoke at the Paramount was Carrie Nation, who was a prominent prohibitionist and somebody who actively, actively worked against uh, the sale of alcohol. I don't think she'd be pleased by the fact that a good chunk of the Paramount's current income comes from alcohol sales. Right. <laughs> but she spoke at the Paramount. And I may be wrong here, but I think the decision to serve alcohol in the Paramount has happened in my lifetime. It wasn't that long ago, was it? Yeah, no, you're right. You know, but yeah, it, eventually the theaters in town realized that, hey, <laughs> the way to make money. Especially the the history of the Paramount. It was right. struggling for a long oh, yeah. time. We almost survive. lost it in the 70s. We almost lost it in the 80s. Probably another time we came close in the 90s. But the business model did not gel completely until the 21st century because it, it's a nonprofit. It requires a huge amount of fundraising. But it also requires really deft uh, management and booking. Mm-hmm. And it's had very good luck with that. I call it a populist palace because they're very good at finding acts that they know audiences in Austin will like. So the comedians are always have this edge, you know, and for a long time, Lyle Lovett, for instance, played there so often that one critic called it the house that Lyle built, you know. <laughs> so they've been very good at, at booking acts. Of course, they booked the, the, the stateside next door, which is a 1930s Art Deco movie house that's been turned into a live venue. Definitely, you need both. You need a powerful fundraiser and you need the ability to recognize in advance what's going to sell. At one point, a woman considered the most famous woman in the world performed not at the Paramount. Not at the Paramount. People believed it to be the people parent. still will say that. And it well, first tell me about her, and then tell the story of what happened to her show and how, why she did a theater show here. Bernhardt was a French actress. She was an even better publicist. She everything about her life uh, fascinated the whole world, and she was in the papers everywhere. She gave several farewell tours in the early part of the 20th century, and one of them was to play Austin in 1906. Now, she was having a fight with the big syndicate bosses that controlled those touring houses back then, and the the big touring house at that time was the Hancock Opera House, which is gone completely. It was uh, West 6th Street at, at Congress Avenue, facing onto West 6th Street. Any clue what's there now? Yeah, it's a, it's a tower, One American Center or something okay. like that. Uh, she is fighting with these syndicate bosses, so she travels with a giant circus tent. Brings to, her own venue. She brings her own <laughs> venue. Bring your own venue. <laughs> and sets it up actually pretty much where the Long Center is now. Oh. 
which was just wilderness. Keeping out, that would have been a creek at the time, too, yeah. by the way, unless it's flooding. And it was <laughs> flooding because what happened it was torrential rains, the, the tent collapsed, and so she needed to perform indoors. And the managers at the Hancock said, no, our boss says no. And she appealed, and pretty much everybody in, in the government, including the governor, said, no, you need to. This is the most famous woman in the world. She's here in town. You've got to let her perform. She performed in French, and everybody loved it. This was all well before the Majestic slash Paramount was built. Do you know the reason why the name change, Majestic to Paramount? Is it because the movies were coming? They felt like they needed a new brand? No, or? briefly, the Paramount studio owned it, briefly, in the late 20s. The Depression came and also antitrust regulators started cracking down on studios owning their own theaters because it was a kind of monopoly they felt was wrong. So Carl Hobbesell, based in Dallas, bought it back and kept the Paramount name. Okay. That's interesting. Now the dirty part. Oh, well, not that dirty. But <laughs> but for the time. For the time. Sally Rand. She, she knew some lighting tricks. Yes. She was <laughs> a at the very end of Burlesque, and Burlesque was the naughty version of vaudeville. And if you know the musical Gypsy, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And Sally Ram was a fan dancer. Oh, that's where they're just cleverly covering, covering their, up their, their bits. Their, and their, <laughs> their, their supposed nakedness. But in fact, she wasn't naked. She was wearing flesh-colored tights. But the only way she could give the illusion that she was naked while she was fan dancing was if the spotlight was blue, if you had a blue gel on the spotlight, because that made it indistinct. Mm -hmm. And the one time the spotlight operator... He got one job. He had one job. <laughs> put that blue spot on Sally Rand, and he made a mistake. She sh stopped the show, walked from the stage, up the aisle, up the stairs to the balcony, to the projection booth, cursing like a sailor every step of the way, then she retraced her steps quietly and resumed the show in her customary <laughs> blue spot. <laughs> I just love that story. What a visual. Yeah. Well, thanks for tuning in to Austin Found. Again, that story is in Volume 2 of Indelible Austin. That's right. And Volume 1, 2, and 3 are available at a lot of bookstores and gift shops. We often recommend book people because they'll get them to you quickly. And Volume 4 is on the way. Do us a favor, if you enjoy this show, share it on your socials, jump on Google or iTunes and give us a review. That helps people discover it. We would sure appreciate that. And send us your questions and comments. You can send it to mbarnes at statesman.com or jhager at statesman.com. Thanks for tuning in to Austin Found. Happy trails.